The American Council of the Blind presents ACB Reports, a monthly news magazine featuring topics of interest to people who are blind or have low vision. I'm Mike Duke. This month... Important legislation is pending in Congress, and the ACB Board of Publications presents awards at the annual conference. Welcome to ACB Reports for October 2017. Now that its fall recess is over, Congress is considering legislation of importance to people who are blind and to the disabilities community in general. Tony Stevens, Director of Advocacy and Government Affairs for the American Council of the Blind, explains. It's impossible these days to have any kind of crystal ball that will tell us just where Congress is going to go with an issue. There's been a lot of activity, but not a lot of deliverable action with Congress over the past year due in part to a lot of just sort of gridlock internal amongst members and trying to reach in the Senate a majority. We saw this over the summer with the health care reform and how health care had come back up in September, which was a major issue. You know, for us, the main conversation around health care is assuring that Medicaid will be protected so that people that rely on certain support services through Medicaid waivers or two, historically, the overwhelming majority of people who are blind and visually impaired are lower on the economic strata and rely a lot on, on government benefits and things like that. So we, we try to make sure that, you know, their voices are heard well and that any responsible effort of health care reform that involves Medicare and Medicaid remembers that it's dealing with real people at the end. You know, there's a lot of conversations around what's called block granting, uh, but that can create some very large challenges for a number of states that have very expansive Medicaid programs and rely a lot on Medicaid to help uh, a lot of people with disabilities. So we will, the ACB, continue to sort of be engaged with the coalitions and groups here in Washington, D.C., around health care reform. Uh, there's also current efforts as well to curtail certain rights under the Americans with Disability Act that have been a concern. For us, it's been something that hasn't been too realized until recently with some areas that we've been dealing with around access due to technology with, like, kiosks and things like that. There's a current bill in Congress called H.R. 620, which is the ADA Education Reform Act. It's a piece of legislation that's mainly been sponsored by a lot of the associations that represent the small shopping centers, National Restaurant Association, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, hotels, and groups like that. The legislation would put a hold on any kind of legal action that you could take in a court. Uh, there's still what's called mediation, which is where a person can go to the Department of Justice, say they have a complaint, and the Department of Justice can work through their mediation contractors to help try to find a solution to, let's say, if there's an ADA violation taking place that's in a physical setting, which if it's in a for-profit or privately owned non-governmental setting, we call that under Title III of the ADA. Title II of the ADA deals with state governments and local government, libraries and schools and things like that. Title III deals with your shops down the street, your shopping centers, your department stores, grocery stores. Uh, but where we've been growing concerned with, this legislation as it stands would make it more difficult for folks to bring legal action to a court, meaning if you're someone in a wheelchair and you go to a store, but you find you literally can't get into the store, and it's a store that's built after 1990 because, let's say, there's stairs or the ramp's not done right or the handles aren't done right, you know, that's called an architectural barrier, an access barrier. And oftentimes these are issues that folks with mobility impairments have faced in certain places 
to get access to the stores and public places of public accommodation. We have found in the age of technology that more and more places like restaurants, particularly, are using tablets or kiosks where you'll go in and you know you go to the grocery store and it's a, a situation where you know the kiosk is the self-service checkout. Uh, businesses have an incentive because it reduces their expensive labor costs, and tech companies have an incentive because they're able to create things that are integrating technology to be more you know what they call human user interface Hueys uh, that kind of make us sort of a more of the George Jetsons, the Jetsons kind of life, you know, where cars someday will fly and, you know, robots will get us everything we need. But then there's also this sort of tier within Title III with these kiosks, like I said, and most recently we had a settlement actually with a restaurant that was sort of deemed by folks in the business as the restaurant of the future, the self-service where you go in and literally there's no one there. You know, the checkout places, usually the grocery stores, there's always someone you can go to that's a human. But in the settlement we just did with a, a restaurant chain that's in a few of the major cities around the country called Itza, is they created a model where it was kind of like Rosie the Robot from the Jetsons. There was literally nobody in the store when you walked in. It was just a kiosk with a touchscreen, which was a tablet behind some plywood with a fancy graphics all over and around it. And then a bunch of like doors, kind of like let's make a deal, where you choose a door and it'll buzz you, or not buzz, but it'll light up with your number or you know, and indicate your order's ready. And you go to a door, you open it up, you never see a face. And then you leave with your food, this, this you know, sort of nice, uh, healthy-oriented type rice bowls, quinoa-type stuff. And, you know, it was difficult because, obviously, we go in there, and then there were also issues with the app as well not being accessible. What do we do? There's no more alternative of the one checkout lane that's left, the one human being, even though, you know, because like McDonald's and places are also using kiosks, but there are always at least humans there. And the ADA says any alternatives to what is there must be sort of served up equally in, in amount of time and, and access and things like that. So we were lucky that ITSA in the settlement is going to work toward providing uh, accessible solutions and ways for people who are blind to know where to get their food out of. And the tablet, it was essentially the whole time, it was just an iPad. And we, those that are blind know that iPads are you know, sort of leading the way in accessibility. They're just trying to find a way to get the accessibility to work. With this legislation, our fear is that those kind of barriers that we can use in the courts where sometimes mediation might not be the best result, or if you write a letter and just say, hey, we want to try to help you, and then you never hear back. We don't want to have to deal with the courts, but every now and then we have to. And situations like EATS, I think, show that there can be great success. Rather than the frame that a lot of these associations representing, like shopping center stuff, are saying, everybody out there that's suing is trying to just make a buck off the ADA, and it's drive-by lawyers, and we're trying to do all the drive-by lawsuits, and we're trying to do all this. For us, it's, it's real access areas. You go to a lot of restaurants now, you know, we've heard complaints about, like, Olive Garden, and people, you know, not being able to order your breadsticks because turns out they bring you a tablet. Somebody was telling me how they were at the table, and surprise, there's a tablet at the table, and they didn't know. And what do you do on it, you know? So more and more we're seeing these technologies create physical access barriers. You know, we always thought, well, this was kind of an area that maybe people in wheelchairs had to deal with more, but we're finding it a reality as well for people who are blind. The more people incorporate technology into places of public accommodation, you know, even if it's like screens at the train station instead of announcements that print out emergency alerts or something like that or what track your train's leaving on, we need to know these things and have access to them. So we're actively engaging on uh, the legislation. It's been marked up in the committee. Our hopes is that Congress will not act on it by the time folks are hearing this. It's something that we're hoping people can let their members of Congress know that, look, the ADA is the one sort of civil rights legislation that enters into the world where folks 
try to always put forward the argument, well, this is going to cost us so much money to try to fix something. But it's our civil right. I mean, the courts have said it, Congress has said it, that we have a right to access as people with disabilities and people who are blind and visually impaired. So, you know, for us, the solutions oftentimes are far cheaper than the legal fees people probably have to charge up to even go to court. Uh, so our hope is that we can meet people before any kind of legal actions ever necessary. And as is so often the case with the resolution of an accessibility issue, everybody wins because the business actually gets more money because they get more customers. But that doesn't make the headlines. No, it doesn't. <laughs> and it's, you know, oftentimes we say that, you know, we're such a small niche. How often do you ever see a blind person? It reminds me of I went to a large public university that for a while had the Office of Disability on the second floor of an accessible building. So you're probably sitting there going, why are all the students seeking disability help? It's like, well, maybe they can't get to the building. You know, it's like the more and more technology allows us to get out into the community, the more that we can dial up a car and get away from our house and we don't live near a bus and get door to door, the more we're out there. And it's not just that, but our population is growing significantly. So, I mean, we know that, you know, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevent Blindness America they all continue to say that, you know, from 2020 to 2050, I mean, blindness is going to double in this country. And we're already at now 23 million Americans who, even with glasses, have vision impairment. So the numbers are only going to get more and more. As Americans continue to live longer and want to age in place, they're also going to want to go out and participate in communities and be able to call up cars and do all the things that everybody else can do. And do it from their telephone, their iPad, their, their, exactly, their yeah. I mean, Android device, yeah. whatever. Technology is, has been such a great game changer for people who are blind the past 10 years since the iPhone came out a little over 10 years ago. And the first accessible one was like the following year. You know, we're going on 10 years next year, I think, for the first accessible version. But in that, we are finding, too, that technology more recently is becoming a hindrance as well in these places of public accommodation like, like we're dealing with with kiosks. So that's an area that we'll be focusing on over the next year. With the new fiscal year for the federal government beginning in October, Usually this time of the year, we see lots of uh, budget discussions back and forth between the administration and Congress. What's on the budget front? We hear a lot in February and April about the budget where proposals are presented, and in recent years there's been, you know, time after time of significant cuts to government programs and spending. One of the issues we took to the Hill this year was specifically focusing on the smaller programs and, and things like that that the government funds for people who are blind that you don't often hear about. Things like the Institute for Museum and Library Services, which helps fund a lot of the local talking book libraries. There was some research that the Department of Defense was doing in emergency field surgery for uh, people who are wounded out in battle for saving their eyesight. And significant research is done there that can help us in our rooms around the country. Uh, we focused on issues like American Printing House for the Blind and National Library Services for the Blind and Physically Handicapped. And a lot of programs that you don't always hear about. You know, we hear a lot about saving Medicaid and other programs like that that are the large sort of programs to get news coverage. But there's a lot of stuff out there that people rely upon, things that fund like Bookshare for folks that subscribe to Bookshare and they're talking books. So we actively push for that, and we were, we were excited to see that in some cases, like American Printing House, I understand, got an increase this year. You know, we were lobbying for $10 million for this research for the veterans Along with Blinded Veterans, we got keyed into it from the Blinded Veterans Association. They had lobbying as well for this DOD research. Uh, ends up there, you know, in the defense appropriations last I saw was $15 million was what was proposed. And assuming that that got passed, 
we are sort of in a world of appropriations, authorization, spending bills that kind of are continuing resolutions, or we continue to spend what was the previous number. That sometimes is hard for adjusting for inflation, but it's not as a draconian as folks were saying back in February when there were budget proposals that would have been huge, huge cuts to like Department of Education that funds the rehabilitation services, health and human services, and other programs like that. So we were glad that, you know, we're kind of operating in still sort of that status quo, at least for the foreseeable future, as Congress still tries to work to pass a true, in a sense, bipartisan budget. But we know for the next foreseeable years, there's still going to be lots of conversations around significant budget cuts, so we'll probably have to go to the Hill next year as well. We want to make sure that when we go to our, our legislative seminar during our mid-year conference next year, that we are able to continue to advocate for these programs and bring attention to these programs, because they are really significant for the quality of life for people who are blind. And, you know, you sustain a good quality of life that keeps people independent in their homes. So that's where we are. You know, we're already starting to look toward the mid-year We'll be putting out a voter rights guide as well next year as an election, so we're excited to be working on a voter rights and voter access guide that will be coming out in the first of the year, and that's something we're working on as well for our members, and hope that state affiliates will be involved in helping with that around the country. You said it earlier, independence equals economic stimulation. We've talked about health care and the ADA. How about transportation? One area that we're excited about is Congress has been taking a real serious effort toward autonomous vehicles and the federal government sort of creating a, an environment that will stimulate further development in autonomous vehicles, but also sort of giving a sense of the way in which states will be regulating and pushing out laws on their own state level and on federal level with the National Highway Transportation Safety Administration, NHTSA, any regulations around autonomous vehicles. We're no. a lot closer to that reality than people think with driverless cars on our street. They're already on the streets in San Francisco and Scottsdale, Arizona, and, and Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I was going to say, now by autonomous vehicles, you mean uh, driverless? Driverless cars, yes. There's currently what's called highly autonomous, which uh, you know are, are still have a human, still has a steering wheel, but essentially the computers are driving them. But we mostly see it, too, in a lot of the smaller things that you get in even new cars now with Ford or General Motors cars that have like brake assist, line adjustment for people starting to steer out of the way. It'll shake the steering wheel and bring you back into the center of the lane. These things are already being put in cars now, and they're essentially the building blocks that are going to have fully autonomous vehicles. So the idea is that someone that is completely incapable of driving now, for whatever reason, will be capable of driving in the future. And the future is much closer than we had anticipated probably 10 years ago, thanks in part to companies like Lyft and Uber that are willing to put a significant amount of their investment, understanding that it's going to be hard to get any kind of driverless vehicle on the road because they're not going to be cheap at first. Tesla has a vehicle, I think, that's kind of out there that's highly autonomous, but they're extremely expensive. But companies like Uber and Lyft are willing to put in big investment so that we can start getting used to them by having them on our streets. Uh, you know, a lot of people who are blind will be using Uber and Lyft, and we're working on making sure these systems are accessible with the company so that, you know, when it shows up, you know where it is and how to find it. If there's not a human being inside, how do we operate it, you know, with our phone and things like that. But it's also allowing us, though, this conversation around driverless cars is the pedestrian safety factor. I mean, I say this as someone who's been hit by cars a couple times in my life. I know a lot of other people who are blind have had similar experiences and have some stress on the roads. A car that is always alert is always paying attention, uh, even when there's a human behind it, even behind, let's say, the highly, not the fully autonomous vehicles, is going to make huge safety improvements on our streets for pedestrians. You know, 40,000 people die a year from automobile accidents. 
we are excited to think that there is technology out there that will be, A, assisting people who might get distracted and we find injuries happening with, but B, too, make it safe. Uh, you know, there's, uh, I think uh, I would trust a computer much more than somebody who's been awake for 20 hours going home from work or somebody that, you know, is texting. So that's an exciting area that we've been working on, and that's part of the conversation in October. Both the House and the Senate have pieces of legislation. The House passed through theirs, and as of early October, the Senate is moving toward markup on a House bill. Uh, we're working to make sure that, you know, there are opportunities to make sure that we are at the table, at the drawing table, if you were, as these vehicles are being developed with the Department of Transportation and with auto industry stakeholders. And, you know, in September, we joined the Coalition for the Future of Mobility, which is a leading advocate and a lot of the auto industry. So there's a lot going on in that area, and again, this is beneficial to everybody. Safety benefits all of us. You're right, and it's going to have you know, significant impact once autonomous vehicles are more accessible for people to get. Just think about how we live, where we live, where we choose to live, based on how we can get around. We deal with people that call into our office that are trying to relocate because they've lost their sight and they can no longer get around in the town they're in, and how do they relocate and get services in another part of the country or another part of their state because of becoming blind. So this is going to have huge social impact on, on a wide range, not just people who are blind, but really a way that we have to think about cities and, and how we exist as a society by the mere fact of how we get around now. That was Tony Stevens, Director of Advocacy and Government Affairs for the American Council of the Blind. You're listening to ACB Reports. You can assist fellow blind individuals who have been negatively affected by recent natural disasters by making a tax-deductible donation to the ACB Disaster Relief Fund. Financial contributions to the ACB Disaster Relief Fund may be made online at donate.acb.org forward slash relief. Or checks made payable to the American Council of the Blind may be mailed to American Council of the Blind, 6300 Shingle Creek Parkway, Suite 195, Brooklyn Center, Minnesota, 55430. Be sure to write in the memo field on your check that your gift is for disaster relief. To make a contribution over the phone, call 1-800-866-3242. The ACB Special Interest Affiliate Guide Dog Users Incorporated has a well-established disaster assistance and preparedness program which supports any members with a working guide dog who need financial assistance to care for their guide dog during recovery from a catastrophic event. If you would like to make a donation to GDUI, it's easy and secure to do so online at guidedogusersincorporated.org donate. Thank you for your support as we endeavor to assist ACB members and others in the blindness community who have been negatively impacted by natural disasters to rebuild their lives. The ACB Board of Publications oversees the organization's magazine, the ACB Braille Forum, and other media for the American Council of the Blind. This board also administers several awards at the organization's annual conference. This year, the awards were presented by Board of Publications members Susan Glass and Deb Cook-Lewis. The Ned E. Freeman Excellence in Writing Award was instituted in 1970 and will be awarded based on the following criteria. An article must have been first published between April of 2016 and March 2017. All articles published in the ACB Braille Forum 
in all forms and formats are automatically eligible for consideration. Individual articles published by any ACB affiliate in its official publication may also be nominated by the affiliate's president or editor. Articles which have not appeared in the ACB Braille Forum in all forms and formats may be submitted in any format. The article must demonstrate excellence in writing, novelty of approach, and or originality of the subject matter. The author of the winning article will receive a plaque and a cash prize of $100 at the annual ACB conference and convention. Any individual who has won a Board of Publications Award since 2013 is ineligible to receive the same award prior to January 1 of 2018. I um, was the humble and honored recipient of this award in 2014, and I can tell you it was a wonderful surprise. It was a piece I had written about audio description in Washington, D.C., and it was just a real honor. Today's award winner is Jamie Pauls, and he is receiving this award for an article that he wrote in which he discusses UEB, Unified English Braille Code, and English Braille Code, and produces an extremely balanced and well-rounded approach um, to that discussion. And um, this award is presented to Mr. Jamie Pauls. Well, thank you very much. Um, it's a real honor um, to be able to write um, articles for Access World with AFB and then also to have that published in the ACB Braille Forum. Um, I guess when I write articles, I try to write things that I'm interested in and I try to approach them in a way that I hope if you do a Google search for a, a subject and that pops up, that what I've written will answer some questions for you. So. Apparently, I was able to do that with some success. So thank you all very much. I'm very humbled, and I really appreciate it. The Vernon Henley Media Award is given each year uh, to someone who has really made a difference in, um, in the media or has had a media presentation. They can be part of this organization. They don't have to be. This year's Media Award winner is uh, really someone who works tirelessly for this uh, organization, produces ACB reports and gets it out there for everyone, makes sure that it's available to all the radio reading services. And our winner this year for the Vernon Henley Media Award is uh, Mike Duke. The Vernon Henley Media Award presented to Mike Duke for his tireless work on ACB reports and representing ACB in its best light to radio reading services nationwide. Congratulations, and thank you so much, Mike. First of all, thank you to the members of the Board of Publications for choosing to honor me with this award. Having served on the Board of Publications in the past, I know these decisions aren't made lightly, and this award isn't given every year, so... I really appreciate it. I've had a lot of support in my involvement with ACB Reports. And that support began with my wife, Kathleen, 
who's my biggest fan and biggest supporter, and was the first person to learn that Laura Oftedal had called me to ask me to take over the program. She called me about this time of the year in 2005 and said, how about January 2006? Sounds like a good date. I told her, okay. So I thank Laura for that and also for setting an outstanding professional standard for ACB reports ahead of me. My friend Jay Doudna has helped with some voice transition work between pieces and filled in for me one time when I was babysitting Mitch's frog. (laughs) My employer, Mississippi Public Broadcasting, also said, do it. They allow me to do a lot of the work associated with producing the show in the uh, studios that I work in every day at work. I have and can produce the entire show from home but it sure is nice to do it down there in the real studios. I wish also to acknowledge Vernon Henley. It was his idea and vision to create ACB reports as an outreach tool to the radio reading service audience. At that time, it was only the radio reading service audience, but Mr. Henley would be very proud to see ACB reports now available on ACB radio as a part of many radio reading service streams, including mine back in Mississippi, and uh, in so many places that, you know, in 1985 when the show began, nobody would have ever dreamed of. And finally, thanks to ACB for a long-term investment. Some of you may not know this, but back in Y2K when ACB was 39, and ACB radio was a baby that needed to be nurtured in order for it to grow. Then President Paul Edwards, ACB radio director Jonathan Mosen, and some others, I think Brian Charlson had something to do with putting it together. He was also part of the workshop. A day before the convention, these guys put together a workshop on how to use SoundForge, which is an audio editing program. And I was invited to participate in that workshop. The skills that we all learned that day brought several new voices to ACB Radio. Marlena was in there, and uh, Paul and Brian, as I mentioned, and and many others. It enabled me to bring some new skill sets to my job at uh, Mississippi Public Broadcasting and Radio Reading Service of Mississippi, and ultimately to ACB Reports. So... Thanks again for what I consider a long-term investment that still pays great dividends. I would also be remiss, yeah, the technology and the software are wonderful tools. But every time you hear me introduce a segment of ACB reports, there's Braille beneath my fingers. And it would be very challenging for me not to have that Braille there. Even though one of my friends back home, who is now a state senator, he and I were working together one morning, and we were, he was frantically trying to find the weather forecast, so I picked up my Braille sheet, and I held it up toward the window, and he said, put that down, your writing gives me goosebumps. <laughs> so, so call it what you want. It's a, it's a wonderful tool. Thank you again, ACB, for a great recognition that I will display proudly and for the privilege of being part of the American Council of the Blind. You've been listening to ACB Reports, heard on radio information services nationwide on side four of the Braille Forum cassette edition and throughout the world on acbradio.org.
ACB Reports is produced at Radio Reading Service of Mississippi, a service of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Contact the American Council of the Blind online at acb.org or phone 800-424-8666. Thanks for listening, and please join us again next month for another ACB Reports.